following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. If uh, you were here with us on Friday night, then you recognize instantly that we're coming back right to the, to the same passage that we were th- uh, looked at on Friday evening. Um, if you weren't here with us on Friday night, don't worry. I will kind of give you a, a, a sense of what we talked about then to lead us into our time this morning, but we're going to be reading verses uh, 32 to 42. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a very familiar passage, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? Father, we have gathered this morning to worship you and to see you, and to understand you more. And so we have given this weekend, both Friday night and this morning, to just trying to do that, to to more fully understand who you are and what you have done for us in Jesus and in his death on the cross for us and in his resurrection. So I pray that as we look in your word this morning, as we just take these very simple thoughts, very simple words, that you will convict us of our small thoughts of you, that you will show us how much you genuinely have loved us and that we will come out of here just rejoicing at what you have done for us in Christ and how how you have sacrificed him to make us your own. We love you, Father. Please speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I told the folks that were here on Friday night that uh, I've been reading J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, over the last few months. I've been reading it very slowly, very devotionally, just it's just been awesome. Uh, if you've never read that book, I would highly recommend it. And it would be no uh, uh, overstatement for me to say to you that it has really rocked my world in many respects in relation to my understanding of God. And while I could point that out in many, respe- uh, many ways that he's done that, there were two particular aspects that have stood out. And the neat thing about these two aspects is that they fall perfectly on either side of the cross, one in how we view God before the cross, before the resurrection, one in how we view him after. On Friday night, we looked at the first of those two, how we view or understand God as judge. And to do that, I brought us to this passage that I just read, and I asked a very, very simple question to the people who were here that night. I said, when you look at this passage, when you read these words and you follow the description, what is it that Jesus is afraid of? Because clearly, as you read the text, you see that he is greatly troubled. He is distressed. He says he's sorrowful even to death. And so the question is, of what? And in the past, as I have thought through that answer, I have often thought that, well, of course, he's 
he's fearful of the, of the crucifixion, because I would be. And uh, I think that's a mistake we often make to put our small thoughts into Jesus's mind or into God's mind and assume that he sees and thinks of things like we do. Clearly, that is a mistake every time we do it. Um, and, and so, but that was what I thought, that maybe that was it. And yet, Packer helped me see that that answer really doesn't make any sense when you think about it. First, he brings up the point, well, if Jesus is afraid of dying, how, many, how, how come there are so many other people in the New Testament who are not? And you look at guys like Stephen and Paul and others, and, and these are guys who faced death with joy, with gladness. They, they embraced it. They were excited for it because they got to be with, with Jesus forever. So these guys are strong and are courageous, and Jesus isn't. Is that what we're saying? Or The second point he brought up that I had never really thought of so much, he goes, well, we say that Jesus is afraid of dying, but hasn't he been like talking about this and walking towards this willingly, knowingly the entire time? I mean, just in that area of Mark that we're in right now on any normal Sunday, we're seeing how he's, he's talking about his death. And he doesn't sound scared when he does. And now all of a sudden on the, the eve of dying, he's, you know, he's come to grips with what's happening. He's afraid. I, I don't think so. And so if he's not afraid of dying, then what exactly is he afraid of? And what I said Friday night, well, the, was that the only other option here is that he's afraid of having to endure the wrath of God against sin on our behalf. That's, that's really the only thing left, which is significant to me because no one understands the wrath of God better than Jesus, God himself. He understood God's wrath against sin completely. He understood it perfectly. He knew everything it entailed. He knew its full fury. He knew its terrible fierceness. And when he thinks about all of that and what he's about to endure, he, he's trembling at the thought of it. And as I concluded my comments Friday night, I noted that here in verse 36, he calls him Abba, Father. And this word Abba is an important word, particularly for this morning, because it's like the Aramaic form of, of daddy. Okay, if you wanted to like, translate that as best we could in English, it's not exact, but it's, a, it's the word you would only refer to your father with. The, that guy, the man in your life who has loved you and cared for you as a family term. He, he refers to him here as Abba Father, but the reality is, is he knows that in a, in a few short hours, he will not be kneeling before God as his father. Rather, he will be hanging before God as his judge, and God will judge his own son as being a curse, as being a sin bearer on our behalf, and will act accordingly. So, so no wonder Jesus is afraid. And this scene in the garden, to me, it just gives us a, a hint, a, a taste, a, a glimpse of what it's going to be like for those who have to stand before God as judge someday. And just think about that for a moment, what that would be like. Because here's Jesus, the perfect, sinless son of God. He's trembling at the thought of having to endure it, and he can endure it. He's able to endure it, and he's still trembling at the thought of it. So if he's trembling... what? What would we do? I mean, this, this should change our view, our understanding of God as judge. This is what God was for everyone prior to the cross. And this is what he is still sadly for many today. Thankfully, though, the cross happened. Thankfully, the resurrection happened. And because of that, for some of us, things have changed and they've changed drastically. And this is the second aspect of, of our understanding of God that I've been just really blessed by here in reading Packer. And, and to help you see what he's trying to get across, I'm going to ask you a simple question again, just one question, that at first won't seem connected to anything we're talking about, but I promise you it is. Just, just 
just trust me for a moment. Here it is. What was God's name in the Old Testament? Don't answer it out loud, but think about it. What was God's name in the Old Testament? Well, you find the answer to that question in Exodus chapter 3. This is the scene where Moses is out in the wilderness and he comes across a burning bush, right? And God says, listen, I want you to go into Egypt and call my people out. Lead them out. And Moses is super excited about this, right? Super confident in his ability to do this. Okay, not, not quite. The, the whole rest of that context or the conversation there is Moses posing a, a, a series of questions and concerns to God. Well, what about this? I got this problem. I got this. I got this. And so what we're reading now is one of those many concerns. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Which is a legitimate question because he hasn't been there for a while. So if he all of a sudden shows up in town and is like, hey, everybody, uh, God appeared to me and he wants me to bring all of you out. They're going to be like, what God? Who told you this? You know, wh what's his name? Tell us, how do we know that we can listen to you? So it's a valid question and God answers it as a valid question. God says to Moses, here's, the, here's his name, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This was God's name, right? I am, as he revealed it to Moses in the Old Testament. And this was a name that Israel revered. You know, later God's going to say, uh, don't use my name in vain. And so the, the people of Israel were so afraid of doing that, they quit saying it all together. They, they, they quit pronouncing it. They, we don't even know how it was pronounced anymore in, in Hebrew because they wouldn't say it. They were afraid of that name. They would just use the, the word Lord instead, a title, rather than his real name. This name, I am, emphasized the holiness and eternality and separateness, if that's a word, of God. And it was in this name that God entered into covenant with his people. The, the Old Testament is just brimming with reverence for God and his name. And even as Jesus comes on the scene, as he's interacting with the people around him there in first century Israel, first century Palestine, you, you get the same sense from the people. They're still talking about God in this way, which is another reason why Jesus so aggravated the people of his day. You see, he didn't call God Lord. What did Jesus call God? See if you can get it. Father. He, he calls him Father, and you see an example of that here in the garden, right? He falls on his knees. Abba, Father, this close, familial, intimate term, Daddy, Father, as he prays. Jesus did this. No one around him would have dared to do this. In fact, John later is going to uh, make this point very clearly. In John chapter 5, 18, after Jesus has been in kind of a public argument or conversation with the Pharisees, and he's called God Father publicly, John writes, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. This infuriated them. How dare he assume such a close relationship with God because God's name is not Father, is it? It's I am. That's how he revealed himself, and that's how we should call him and refer to him, right? Well, no. You see, the New Testament teaches us to call God something different now. The New Testament teaches us also to call God Father as well. And, and boy, there's like hundreds of places I could go for this to, to make this point, but of all of them, I felt one in particular was, was the most helpful, and it's Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this. He says, 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And let's just stop and, and think that comment through. He says, when the fullness of time had come, meaning that when, when we had finally reached that point in human history, which was part of God's plan where this is it, now is the time, God sends forth his son. He's born of a woman. He's a man like us. And he is born under the law, meaning he's, he's come to live as we are called to live, to keep God's commands and do what God says so that he can redeem those who are under the law. And I'll stop at this point and just, and just help make sure you understand this word redeem because it's a beautiful, awesome word. Uh, um, it's better to do it, I think, in an illustration. Imagine you're in the first century and you're a, a landowner, you're a master of, a, of an estate, and you've got uh, servants out in the fields working, and some marauders come through, and they take your favorite servant, and they kidnap them, take them off to another country, and you, you want to go rescue the servant, and so you follow them, you get to wherever they went, and you find the servant is, is now for sale in the marketplace to be a slave. You are going to have to redeem that servant. You're going to have to buy them back, purchase them out of captivity to make them your own again. That's the word redeem. Here, we are under captivity to the law and in captivity to sin. Jesus has come to purchase us out of that, to free us from that. And so that is what he's done. He's redeemed us who were under the law. But here's where it's different than my illustration. Because he hasn't done that to make us servants again. Notice he did it so that for this purpose, we might receive adoption as sons. He's buying us back, not to make us servants, to make us his children. And so what is the outworking of that for how we think of God and what we call him? Well, look at the very next verse. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wait, that looks familiar. Is there any other place we've seen that perhaps? Oh, wait, yeah, Jesus in the garden, right? As he falls on his knees. These are the same exact words, the same exact reference that, that he refers to God. Paul is telling us now that we have the same close, intimate relationship with God that Jesus did. We're, we're considered sons now because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And two questions come out of that. First, how did this happen? Because we are not God's children naturally. You hear people say that, oh, everybody's God's children. You know, that, that is a lie. We are not God's children naturally. Naturally, we're God's enemies. We have no right to call him father. So, so how is it possible for this to happen? Well, it's through faith in Jesus, right? It's because he drank the cup. It's because he embraced the hour. It's because he hung before God as his judge, and God judged him as being a curse and a sin bearer in our place and poured out all of his wrath on him. Listen, folks, it's because Jesus stood before God as judge that you and I get to stand before him as children, as his, him being our father. This is Paul's larger point in the letter to the Galatians, that we become children of God through faith. And if you weren't here last week for me to, to hear my explanation of faith, let me just repeat it because it's important. Faith is not simply believing something to be true. I believe a lot of things are true, but faith is more than that. Faith is trust. It's being all in on something. 
It's being all in on Jesus. I'm putting all my eggs in his basket. I'm not hedging my bets. You know, I'm not diversifying my portfolio. So in case I'm wrong about Jesus, I've got this option or that. No, faith in Jesus requires us being all in on him to the point that if we're wrong about Jesus, (laughs) we've got no other hope. When we have that kind of faith in Jesus, Paul says there in Galatians, God counts us as being his own children. We are adopted as his sons and daughters, and we have the privilege of referring to him now as Abba, Father. That's how this happens. Second, what does this mean for us? Well, I'd give you two things. First, it means no more separation. You know, I said earlier that the name I am emphasizes God's holiness and his eternality and his separateness. Well, the name Father emphasizes his closeness and his love. You know, we no longer come into his presence timidly. We're told to come into it boldly, just to barge right in, because he's your father. He's your father, and he loves you. And I know, I know in a room this size, that can be difficult, because there's some of you in here who don't have very good fathers. You've had abusive fathers, or absent fathers, or very unloving fathers. You can have a perfect one now, one who loves you perfectly, one who always does what's right, one who listens, and one who wants you to know and love him as much as he loves you. He's your perfect father, and there is no more separation. And can I, can I go down a quick rabbit trail for a minute? Um, this is free. So I, I mentioned last week that over my sabbatical, last couple months, I was uh, thinking a lot about prayer. And I was, and I was praying a lot, just gave extra time for prayer during that time. At the same time, I'm reading Packer, and, and the two kind of collided around this idea. So I'm praying one day, you know, dear Lord, please Lord, da, 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 you know, that kind of, that kind of wording. And um, an idea popped in my head, and this is maybe dumb, stick with me, hopefully it'll make sense. Try to put yourself in, in the same scenario as I talk about it, but I imagine for a moment that Jamie and I were going to adopt a child. Okay, we decided we wanted to adopt a child. We talked about it. We planned for it. We, we began to sacrifice and save money to make it happen. And we went through all the, the rigmarole you've got to do and filled out all the forms and went through all the checks. And it's all this time. It's very difficult, right? You've you got to go through all this stuff to make it happen. And so finally the day comes and we get the phone call and there's a baby and it's yours and we make the trip and we show up and we see this child and we love it and we take it home and we care for it and we feed it and we change it and we teach it and we we provide for it and 5, 10, 15, 20 years passes and at the end of all that and after all that this child would only ever refer to me as Mr. Potts. It comes home from college, right? That first day from, from, from its freshman year and it's like, hi Mr. and Mrs. Potts, it's so good to see you. I missed you. And I'm sitting there thinking about that. I would be so hurt by that. If I put in all that time and effort and and energy and I sacrificed and I chose and I loved and I cared for and anything less than dad or daddy would be offensive to me, hurtful to me. And yet I've been a, a believer now for almost 20 years and I would say probably by and large I only ever refer to God as Lord. That's accurate. He is Lord. It's accurate to call me Mr. Potts too. That's my name. I, I get it, but He, I think, wants more than that. He didn't die just to be our Lord. He he sacrificed his son to become our father. I'll be honest, I just stopped and apologized on the spot. I was like, Father, I I am sorry. (laughs) 
I know in the end it doesn't matter. I, I get that, and so maybe this is dumb. I don't know, but after all he went through to make me his own, why would I ever want any other relationship with him other than, than that of father and child? Probably dumb. It was convicting to me. Because he's our father now, there's no more separation, folks, and we need to live like that in every aspect of our lives. Number two, there is no more fear. Um, if we place our faith in Christ, he's, he's no longer our judge. He's our father. Some of you need to like write that on your, your mirror, like in your bathroom, to remember that. That's because God's already done all the judging. It's, it's done. He, he knew all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he poured out all of his wrath and all of his anger on his son for it. Packer says another thing, and this would be worth a, a sermon in and of itself. It's not but today, but he makes the comment that God's love for us is utterly realistic. Think about that. That means that he understood perfectly who we were, what we would be, what we do. He loved us anyway. Um, he also goes on to make the point that in that same sense, then God can't be disappointed with us. Because to be disappointed means he expects more. He expects different. Well, how can the all-knowing God expect different than what, are, what is? He can't. God's love is utterly realistic, and he has loved us in spite of our sin and gave his son in spite. He poured out all the judgment on sin, our sin on his son. It's done. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No more fear of judgment because Jesus has paid it all. Packer writes this. this. He says, he's comparing these two views of God, right? The, this concept of God as judge, as the great I am, and now as our father. He says, God and religion are not less than they were. Because what we're not talking about is like he was holy, now he's not. He was separate, now he's like, it's not that. Listen. God and religion are not less than they were. The Old Testament revelation of the holiness of God and its demand for humility in man is presupposed throughout the New Testament. But something has been added. A new factor has come in. New Testament believers deal with God as their father. Father is the name by which they call him. Father has now become his covenant name. For the covenant which binds him to his people now stands revealed as a family covenant. Christians are his children, his own sons and daughters, his heirs. And the stress is not on the difficulty and danger of drawing near to the holy God, but on the boldness and confidence with which believers may approach him, a boldness that springs directly from faith in Christ and from knowledge of his saving work. To those who are Christ, he says, the holy God is a loving father. They belong to his family. They may approach him without fear and always be sure of his fatherly concern and care. This, and listen very carefully because this is true, he says this is the heart of the New Testament message. It really is. This is the heart of the New Testament message, that the one who was our judge and the one to whom we were enemies, he's reconciled us to himself and his son. And he's taken those who were enemies and he's made them children, heirs, sons and daughters of God with Christ. So not only is it the heart of the New Testament message, it's the focus of Easter and of everything we believe and rejoice in. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we, we come to you just so thankful for your great love for us, your realistic love for us, 
So often we forget that and we think that we still have to measure up. And, but you loved us from eternity past, fully knowing who we were, who we would be, what we would do. You set your eternal love on us and you purposed in your own heart not to be happy apart from us. And so you gave your son to take all of the, the wrath and the anger that was rightly ours for our sin. You poured it out on him so that we could be forgiven, so that now in Christ we can be sons and daughters with you. Father, I pray that, that everyone around us, the, the people here this morning, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, so many of whom are, are still under, or, or, or relationship with you is only that of, 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 of an enemy, a criminal, and a judge. I pray that you will open their eyes to see that they don't have to stay that way. That you would call them to yourself and make them your own. Help them to be all in with Jesus so that they can experience this new relationship with you that he offers. And so we thank you, Father. Forgive us for, for continuing to forget your love. For, for living as if that's not true. And I pray that we will pursue you and love you as the Father that you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.